We continue our walk through the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we are at uh, the last few verses of chapter 3. And Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17 is our text this morning. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. This, of course, is the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. John would have prevented Him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to Me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then He consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Join with me in prayer. Our gracious God, You have provided in Your Word such a rich and full palette of description and information. You teach us, O Lord, by Your Word. You sanctify us by Your truth. And this morning, we ask for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to understand what You teach us here. Teach us what it means for Jesus to have been baptized by John the Baptist to receive his baptism of repentance. And help us, O Lord, as we learn what this means to return thanks to you, to sing the praises of your name, to call forth in worship for all that you have done through us, for us through Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about identity and identification and what that means. But before we get too too in-depth into that, I want to talk a little bit about what our culture thinks that that means. If If you tune in to what's going on in the culture, it seems that discussion about identity, it takes place every day and everywhere. But it's mostly in the contexts of privacy and security. How often have you heard about someone's identity being stolen. Their identity, which is caught up in that one little number, that sequence of numbers, that it falls in the wrong hands. And if a person gets it, your life can be destroyed. You may never be able to get credit again. And aside from identity theft, our culture seems fascinated with the idea of changing one's identity. So not only do we have people trying to steal our identity, we have people changing their identity. And it seems like it changes with every day of the week. This is reflected in TV shows and movies where a character assumes another identity in order to get inside or to infiltrate some sort of group, some sort of terrorist cell, something that's going on in the world. And in a culture in which identity is so closely related to appearance, people can change their identities with their wardrobe. They can change identities with the color of their hair. Well, this morning's passage is about Jesus' identity. And it clearly shows Jesus' identity as the Son of God. It clearly depicts it when God speaks from heaven and He declares that this is His beloved Son. 
But it also shows something else about Jesus' identity. Jesus added to his divine identity the identity of sinful human beings. Jesus did not just simply assume the identity of sinful human beings. He didn't assume it like the, the spy on the TV show does. He took it up. He took up our identity. And he did not do it on a whim. It wasn't capricious. It wasn't a capricious decision. Jesus took up our identity as a part of God's eternal plan for our salvation. He took up the the identity of all of the sinners for whom he would become a sacrifice. And by taking up our identity, by taking up the identity of all of those who call upon his name, instead of us dying for our own sins, Jesus died in our place. He died in our place. And so I would ask you as we consider this passage to think on this this key theme. That Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for His people by receiving John's baptism of repentance so that He could identify with sinners. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for His people by receiving John's baptism of repentance so that He could identify with sinners. And I'm treating this passage slightly differently than I generally do. I've divided it up into two sections, but it's not so specifically attached to a, a set of verses. And so the first section I've entitled The Humiliation and Exaltation of Identification. The Humiliation and Exaltation of Identification. And the second is The Reason for Identification. So the first section is the humiliation and exaltation of identification. As we saw last week, John was called by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so he was in the wilderness. He was preaching and he was teaching and he was administering a baptism of repentance. And we read that people came to him from all over Judea. They came from all parts of the promised land. And John warned them about this arrival of the kingdom as they were coming down to Him, as they were streaming down from the hills, He warned them that the Messiah was coming, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And this is on Q, verse 13 in our passage this morning says, And then Jesus came from Galilee to, Jordan, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by Him. And just like that, Matthew poses his readers with a problem. Why would the Messiah need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? Why would Jesus need to receive this baptism? Unfortunately, heresies, both ancient and modern, have used this this supposed problem to to question the divinity of Christ. And this is because other passages of Scripture have been overlooked. They want to deny what passages of Scripture, such as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, says, which says, We have a great high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. They deny this. They ignore it. They overlook it. And so when they read something about Jesus being baptized for repentance, they question, how could He be divine? But the total teaching of Scripture is that Jesus is without sin because He is God who cannot sin. He cannot sin. We've already seen this in Matthew. Just a few short chapters, Matthew has pointed this out. He's provided us with all that we need to declare positively that Jesus Christ is the eternally begotten Son of God. How else can we explain Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit? 
How else can we explain His birth of the Virgin Mary? How can we explain chapter 1, verse 21, which says that Jesus will save His people from their sins? If we do not understand Him as being the eternally begotten Son of God. Matthew, along with the rest of Scripture, is clear that God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. Three persons who are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This is God. But those who have denied Jesus' divinity have taken passages like this one and have emphasized His humiliation over His exaltation. They want to point out that he submitted to this authority, that he submitted to the authority of John, you'll hear some groups say. And they forget the fact that Jesus is also, his exaltation is also displayed here. Jesus' baptism clearly showed his humility. John the Baptist understands this when he tried to prevent Jesus from coming to him. He tried to keep him uh, from being baptized by John. He said, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. John knows that he is not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. But he misunderstands why Jesus is submitting to the baptism of repentance. Galatians 4 verse 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The eternal Word was born of a woman under God's Word, under the law. It was necessary as the Savior of His people to fulfill all of the law for His people. And so Jesus submits not to John. He's not submitting to John here, John's authority. He's submitting to His Father. He's submitting to His Father's authority. He's submitting to His Father's requirement that all Jews who are seeking the kingdom of heaven be baptized just like Gentiles. But for Jesus, there's something more to His baptism than submission and humiliation. For Jesus, in His baptism, there was also exaltation. We've already noticed in previous passages how Jesus is received into this world as a king. And you get the picture of the Magi coming to visit Him. This is the perfect picture. They're coming to visit the King of the Jews. They want to pay Him honor. Jesus is the long-awaited king who comes to sit on the throne of David forever. And the kings of Israel, these kings who followed in the line of David, even David, even Saul, they were anointed by a prophet. When God chose David to succeed Saul as king, he sent Samuel to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. And as soon as David came home, David had been out in the fields, he was shepherding the flock. As soon as he came home, the Lord told Samuel, Arise, anoint him for this is he. And then 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 13 says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. John the Baptist, as the final Old Testament prophet, had the privilege of anointing the final king of Israel. And it doesn't matter that he did not use oil to anoint him. The descent of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove confirms that Jesus was anointed as king. This was the beginning of his ascent to the throne. This was the beginning of Jesus walking up those steps to the palace to take his rightful seat. 
And it would take him three years of public ministry. It would take him three years dying on a cross and being resurrected from the dead to be seated upon this throne. But his ascent began here at his baptism. And the words of God, the Father confirmed this. God speaks. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, let this sort of... uh, get your brain going this morning. When God spoke these words from heaven, God was alluding to another passage in His Word. (laughs) He was alluding to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which we've already spoken about a little uh, this morning in the the adult Sunday school class. Psalm 2 was an enthronement psalm. psalm. It was read or it was sung at the coronation of a king. We read it as our responsive reading this morning. And verse 7 says, I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now the Father's allusion to Psalm 2 does not mean that Jesus was begotten as God's son at His baptism. This has been the error of many a heretic. And that is not what is being taught here. Jesus made that clear in John 8, 58, when He said to the Jews, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was not begotten that day at His baptism. And the Jews understood this when He said this about Himself. And they tried to stone Him, accusing Him of blasphemy. Well, not only does God allude to Psalm 2, God alludes to to Isaiah 42 when He speaks about Jesus. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. When God says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, He alludes to this passage. And we all know that the servant of, of Isaiah 42 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And we understand that there is a great amount of suffering that will take place, even for the Lord's anointed, even for His King. There are three years of suffering from the start of His enthronement to the time when He is finally seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the servant of God. He will suffer. He will suffer for your sake and for my sake. And He does this in order to accomplish the redemption of His people. And so Jesus, when He speaks here, when He speaks, the heavens have opened. He is declaring to all who are present that Jesus is the true King of Israel who will sit on the throne. But that before He is enthroned, He will endure much suffering for the sake of sinful people. We've talked a little bit about the the humiliation and the exaltation of Jesus' identification with sinful people. But let's talk a little about the reason for it. Why did Jesus have to be identified? Why is it even necessary? Why did Jesus have to be be baptized in order to identify with us? Well, Jesus Himself gives us the answer in verse 15 where He says this, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. John has told Jesus that Jesus should be baptizing him, not the other way around. And this is how Jesus responds. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But what does this mean? What does he mean when he says this? Jesus is sinless. 
He's the Son of God. He's the embodiment of righteousness. Why does He need to do anything else to fulfill righteousness? Well, at this point, up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, this is the fifth time that Matthew uses the phrase or the word fulfill. And previously, he has said things along the lines of this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Again and again, he says this. He'll say it again after our passage this morning. And when Matthew has spoken of fulfillment so far, he's talking about fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But here is slightly different. He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about the law. And in Luke chapter 24, verses 27 and 44, Jesus explains that all of the Old Testament prophesied about Him. Verse 44 says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It is not just the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus. The law foretold His coming. The Psalms foretold His coming. And looking at our passage again, when Jesus speaks about fulfilling all righteousness, He's speaking specifically about fulfilling all of the requirements of the law. The law still stands. Jesus says as much in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 5 that not one iota will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law does not fade. And so we can see that John's baptism, in this passage this morning, his baptism is the fulfillment of some of those requirements of the law. The, the law required repentance of sins. Now Jesus had no sins of his own to repent of, but his people do. Jesus repented for us at his baptism, just as he died for us on the cross. And in repenting, Jesus fulfilled that requirement of the law on our behalf. Think about this. What an amazing thing that Jesus, he who is without sin, repents for us. We cannot fathom this. Now, I think there may be another requirement of the law that Jesus fulfilled on our behalf when He was baptized. In His crucifixion, Jesus fulfilled the requirement for an unblemished sacrifice. And John the Baptist understands that this sacrifice was the reason that Jesus came to earth. And in John's Gospel, he makes this clear. John chapter 1, verse 20, 29 says that when Jesus came to the, to the Jordan River, John the Baptist exclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist understands that the whole point of Jesus' earthly ministry is to lead him to the cross where Jesus will be the sacrificial lamb who takes away our sins. This is the point. This is why he was born. He's the sacrificial lamb. But according to Leviticus 1, where these sacrifices were set up, 1 verse 4 says, Before a lamb or a bull or a goat is to be sacrificed as a burnt offering, the person bringing the animal must lay their hand on the animal's head. And it's significant that this sinful person would do this. This is the worshiper here. By laying his hands on the animal, the worshiper indicates that the animal is taking his place as the sacrifice. 
The worshiper is offering himself to God through the sacrificial victim. But there's something more to it. The laying on of hands also transfers the sins of the person to the sacrificial animal. We see this as well in the instructions for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. You see those two goats that are brought before the Lord. One is to be given as a burnt offering. And what is the other one for? The other one is the scapegoat. The scapegoat, which will be sent out into the wilderness. Leviticus uh, chapter 16, verses 21 to 22 says that the priest is to place both of his hands on the head of the scapegoat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat free in the wilderness. Jesus is our scapegoat. When John the Baptist laid his hands on Jesus' head, when he baptized him in the Jordan River, he transferred our sins, our guilt, our transgressions, our iniquities. Jesus Christ was standing in our place. He did not repent of his own sins. He repented of ours because they were laid upon him. Jesus became our sin bearer. And the very next passage, we'll look at it next week, the very next passage in chapter 4, what does Jesus do? He goes into the wilderness. He's sent out. He's given over to Satan. It's attempting. Jesus is our scapegoat. And John the Baptist at his baptism has laid upon Jesus the guilt of us all. Well, at his baptism, Jesus was anointed as king. He was identified as a sinner. And we can affirm that even at his baptism, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was happening even there at his baptism. Our guilt was laid upon the Lord Jesus. Jesus became sin for everyone who calls upon His name. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved, Scripture says. This is our hope. Jesus' baptism teaches you and it teaches me that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make the sacrifice for ourselves. We are not a spotless lamb. We are full of iniquity and sin. And so Jesus, He doesn't just assume our identities, He takes it up. He doesn't do it on a whim. It's God's plan from all eternity that He should become man. He took up the identity of sinners such as you and me so that He could then stand in our place as the perfect sacrifice, not for His own sins, but for your sins and for my sins and for all of those who call upon His name. He became sin for you and for me so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. What does He ask? What does He ask of you? He asks that you call upon His name in faith, that you repent of your sins and turn to Him And He is faithful and just to forgive you and to welcome you into His kingdom as His child. 
And that is good news. Let us join together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus has identified himself with us. We thank you that he who was spotless, sinless, unblemished, that he became sin. So that all those who call upon his name can be free from sin. We pray, O Lord, that you would use this knowledge, that you would use your word this morning to grow us in faith and obedience. Increase your grace to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.